and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. We all know the better life adoption narrative. A child who is usually from the global south is adopted by a loving couple from the west and given a better life, one that they never would have had had they never been adopted. It's always positioned as a win-win, with the child being saved from an inevitable life of struggle and suffering. For this episode, we are going to challenge that narrative with my guest, illustrator, author, and activist Lisa Audem Herblom. Lisa is a Korean adoptee who was adopted by a Swedish couple when she was two years old. During the course of her journey looking for her first parents, she uncovered some unsettling things that challenged everything she was ever told about her adoption. She has documented her experience in a beautiful graphic novel titled Palimpsest. I highly recommend you get your hands on a copy. It is a brilliant and gripping read. In this episode, Lisa talks me through her experiences growing up and living in Sweden as a Korean adoptee, the lasting impact this has had on her identity, and we also look at some of the biggest issues surrounding transnational adoption. Thanks for joining me today, Lisa. I'm really excited to have you over. I've obviously read through your book, which I loved. And yeah, I'm just really excited to talk about all of these issues because I don't think that most people who are either not adopted or know someone who's adopted, um, I don't think they even are aware of some of the issues that we're going to get into today. So shall we start by giving a brief overview of your personal story? Yeah, so I was born in South Korea and uh, I was adopted to Sweden at the age of two um, from uh, from an orphanage that I'd been in two years and I was moved into a white family. So I had two white parents and uh, an older brother who was also adopted from from uh, Korea. And we grew up in this tiny, tiny village in the north of Sweden, very white. Well, Sweden at the time was very white. And I was, I was quite proud of being different and being Korean as a child. I thought I was really cool. <laughs> and people always asked me things, and I thought it was nice to get attention. But then... It got a bit more difficult when I got older. I think that there is always this point, unless you've, you're you very comfortable in your own skin, I think there's always this point in a kid's life when you go from feeling that difference is cool to feeling that you want to be just like everybody else. You don't want to be singled out. You want to fit in. That's That can be quite tricky when you, not just when you grow up in a tiny village, because um, I think that for anyone who was different in that village, it was difficult, <laughs> but also to be um, Asian among mainly white white people. Uh, and I think the times as well uh, played a big part because when I grew up, the first few years, things were quite calm, but then a racist party came into the parliament. Uh, we had a huge influx of, of um, refugees from other countries. A lot of them were of color uh, and a lot of them were put in my tiny, tiny village. So there was this uh, complete shift in the population, which led to a lot of racism 
And people who had been my friends for years and years suddenly started saying things like, oh, you're just here on benefits. And you're like, do you even know what benefits are? Um, and you could tell that they were just copying things that they probably had from their parents or on the news and stuff. So I went from being, oh, yeah, that's Lisa. She's adopted. Of course, we know her parents and she's one of us to becoming suddenly seen as this menace and this threat. And they labeled me with things that certainly didn't apply to me and my situation at all. And I got really, really bullied. And what was your relationship like with your adoptive parents? Um, yeah, it was, it was very good when I grew up. I, I, I loved school. So I studied hard and mm. I never got into trouble because I was also very introvert and I just liked being home and drawing and, but things things got more complicated when I when I got older, and, and I I started realizing a lot of things that I would have needed as a child that I didn't get. Things like, like for instance, conversations about racism mm -hmm. and uh, more honest conversations about adoption. But the whole adoption thing in the when I grew up in Sweden in that time, it was sort of taken for granted that we were doing really well because anything were better than having to grow up in the countries where we came from because Sweden was such considered such a utopia at the time and what could be better for a, a child of color uh, from a poor background than to grow up in beautiful calm lovely Sweden <laughs> to lovely white parents because no one really thought about the impacts it would be for transracial adoptees to grow up not just with um without having any genetic relations to anyone, but also being racially different from everyone. No one really talked about whether that would have any consequences for how we identified ourselves or how we felt. When did you start digging more into your own adoption history? And when did you start to sort of realize that that whole narrative around adoption mm. wasn't necessarily true? Yeah, well, I started quite early on to ask questions about where I came from. I, I always knew that I was adopted because it was very obvious. My my mom is blonde <laughs> and blue-eyed. Uh, we look nothing like each other. There was a lot of conversations about Korea in my family, so so that was no secret at all. And I always wanted to know where I came from, so I was always asking. And then it got really serious when I was a teenager and said that I want to search for my parents. And I remember feeling at the time that I really, really needed to find them. That there were two things that were true to me. Um, and one thing was that I was a mistake because if you, you, you don't get adopted if, if you were meant to be born. That was a, uh, an absolute truth for me, which of course was very harming and the other truth was that if I could just find my parents, everything would be great again. I would be, I would feel better. So I told my parents that I wanted to search and I was, I think I was 16 when I got to see my, my papers, my adoption papers for the first time. And when I, uh, when we started, uh, searching and my papers said that my mom was very young. And my parents were very poor and that's why they couldn't keep me. So they, they gave me up for adoption. That was basically my whole background story. And I contacted the adoption agency and they said that they would look into it. And then quite 
soon after I got the reply that nothing could be done. And that's when I just spiraled into this complete darkness and I was very depressed for many, many years. Uh, what happened then is we f- if we fast forward to the future a bit is that I had my first child. And when I learned that I was pregnant with him, I wasn't com- I- at all prepared for this, but it felt as if I met my mother in a bit, uh, my Korean mother, because the, I, I was growing my first biological relative in my tummy. And I started thinking immediately about my mother. Because up until that point, I had sort of taken for granted, which is not weird, I think, because babies are being born everywhere all the time. So you sort of take for granted that children will be born and that people uh, will be pregnant and give birth and that's it. And then that some will be adopted and some won't. So I had taken the whole thing for granted. And then when I became pregnant with all that it meant, I realized that it's ridiculous that we take this for granted because it's such a huge thing. It's just being able to create life and give birth to life is just insanely wonderful and and, uh, we should be extremely celebrated instead of the way things are in the (laughs) world. Yeah, and yeah, gosh. Uh, also, <laughs> That's a whole, whole, other other, whole other topic. But yeah. yeah. So when I realized that I had a child in my tummy, I just felt that it couldn't have been as easy for my mom as I had thought it had been. Because I had been taught to just talk about my adoption as, yeah, my mother couldn't couldn't keep me. So she gave me a way to give me a better life. And this is the most common story in the world when it comes to adoption that we say that. She loved me so much that she gave me up to give me a better life, which is the biggest sacrifice a woman can do and the biggest gift of love, basically, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I felt ashamed, I remember, when my, my son was finally born. I felt ashamed that I had thought that this was easy for her. And I also felt ashamed that I had bought into the idea that I was meant to be adopted because my my adoptive mother, she had always said that it was meant to be that we would be mother and daughter. And I thought that that was so beautiful. And I, I don't want to take it away from her because I still think it's on a, on one level, it's a beautiful thought. But when you, when you break it down to what actually happened, it was this young girl in a country who had to be pregnant on her own and then give birth and was forced to give me up so that some well-resourced woman on the other side of the earth could become a mother. I don't think that that should ever be what's meant to be. For one person, it's a gift. And for another person, it's a lifelong trauma that is just absolutely horrifying. So I had my son. And when he started talking... It w- it became very clear that he was wondering where we came from because he started connecting all Asians that we he saw with us and saying that is that our family is that your sister is that your your um, your real mother are we related to them so I realized that he had a lot of questions about where we came from and I just felt that I need to give him I need to be able to give him another answer than the one I had given myself when I was young. So I decided to start searching again. And now things had changed a lot because I could carry on, carry out a lot of the search myself and together with my partner. Because when I started searching as a teenager, I was very much in the hands of the agency. 
and uh, and now I could do a lot of searches on the internet and myself and also lots of communities on Facebook that could help out. But I, I started the whole process as I did last time. So I contacted the adoption agency again and said that I want to search for my parents and here, here are my papers and uh, do whatever you can do. And they had, they provided a service. It wasn't just um, out of the blue request. It was something that they had on their website that um, post adoption family search. But what happened then is that I, since I knew English now, when my papers are in English, I could read them thoroughly. And my partner is also English. So, so we read them thoroughly and we found out a lot of discrepancies in the information. Uh, most importantly, we found two documents, one official and one unofficial. And the unofficial stated my Korean name when I was born, the names of my parents and a bit of a background story. And the official document, which was um, sent to, which my adoption is based on, this sort of legal paperwork, states that I'm an orphan with uh, an unknown background and an uncertain birth date. And it just says where my parents' name should be, be it just says unknown. Uh, and I have been given a fake family name, which is the old name for soul, I learned later. And I was very curious about this. So I started digging uh, into what this could mean. Why do I have these two papers that are stating two completely different stories about me? And that's when I learned the term paper orphan. And paper orphan is basically a fabricated a fabrication of an orphan. That is a child who has parents are legally turned into an orphan on paper to make the child adoptable. And this has been done to thousands and thousands of children in, in, in the world, not just Korea. And I found this by connecting with other adoptees who had similar papers and could give me the term. And then when I had the term, I could, I could, um, further my search. And anyway, I got an answer back from my adoption agency who said that there's no, no one in Korea who matches, um, uh, your parents' names. Uh, we're sorry. We can't do anything. And I sort of gave up then and I was very upset and my partner, and this is what my book is about. Uh, so I'm not going to tell the whole story, but my partner took over and he said, this is not good enough. I'm going to see what I can do. And uh, one thing led to another and we found out a lot of things that were very unsettling. And one, maybe not the biggest thing, but one quite big thing that we found out is that the adoption agency actually never searched and that they had never searched the first time either. So, so first of all, I had been lied to about the search and I had false paperwork. I realized that I had been duped and that there was something unsettling going on. Mm -hmm. And what could this mean? So I found a group on Facebook that was sort of dedicated to these issues and sort of tentatively started posting things like, does anyone know anything about corruption or that there may be illegal adoptions? I was very uncomfortable asking these questions. And then it's just, it was like this floodgates opened and like, yes, there is so much. And then I started doing lots and lots of research, reading articles and blog posts and uh, following investigative journalists who had written about this. And realizing that it was worldwide, it'd been going on for years and years, and that that adoption wasn't this thing I'd been fed to believe, this sort of goodwill, what do you say, child protection 
kind of uh, measure that it was actually a billion dollar industry that was based on the idea of vulnerable families that could easily be separated to allow new families be, to be built in 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 the west uh, new wealthy families i remember thinking that it was like a second trauma it is a traumatic event to be adopted because you are separated from someone who has been vitally important to you and it is based on loss no matter if you're happy with your adoption or not it is a fact that adoption is based on 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 loss and a family separation that that's just the way it is and then i felt that yeah the second trauma was to realize that it wasn't that it hadn't even been carried out legally hmm. uh yeah yeah there's so many issues here that we're going to try and unpack um but i think it's important to maybe go back to how this situation all arose so um you've talked before about how it all started actually in korea following the korean war yeah um at least the the uh, the modern adoption industry or the adoptions that we the way we talk about adoptions today because i think adoption has has probably existed for as long as humanity but in in a different form and if we're talking about modern adoptions what i'm talking about then is when a child is taken from one family and usually has his name changed and all ties with the first family are cut. They also cut in open adoptions, uh, but that's a different thing. So I'm mainly talking about closed adoptions and transracial and transnational uh, national adoptions. So the child usually has its names changed, very often uh, changed uh, countries and cultures, sometimes religion, language, and uh, and often adopted into a family of a different race than themselves, usually a child of color into a white family. That system is still quite new if we talk about human human history. It started after the Korean War that ended in 53. And uh, it started off as like one family or a couple, and a, a white American evangelical couple who uh, saw all these actual real orphans uh, in Korea left after the Korean War uh, in need for for new families. And they took quite a large number of them themselves and and flew them back to the US. And then they started spreading this idea to their friends and saying, like, you can have your own war orphan, basically. So this became a big thing. Like, this family is rescuing uh, children from Korea, blah, blah, blah. And people started signing up. So they started an adoption program together with the Korean government. But then the orphans ran out. So they needed to find another way to get children into the adoption program uh, because there were so many requests from couples in the US and also starting to spread to other countries like Sweden. So what they did then is is that they found other strategies to get women to relinquish their children. And it could be done in a, in a different a number of different ways. Everything from coercion to actual theft of children. And then they gave the children false paperwork, basically creating them, creating paper orphans so that they could be legally or seemingly legally adopted into, into Western countries. So that's where it all started. And then it spread to a lot of other sending countries. Um, and, and these countries tended to be war torn yeah um yeah what 
what you can see is that the things that they have in common is that they are hardly ever countries where things are working very well. There's usually either corrupt governments, military dictatorships, adoption programs tend to move into countries that have just been through like um, natural disasters like Haiti it was is very was very famous at the time when they had a big earthquake and children were trafficked from there so there's usually some sort of disaster or high level of corruption or mil- military dictatorships and so on basically countries where it's easier to set up businesses that are breaking human rights laws can we talk more about the whole white savior complex as well, because there's huge elements of racism and also classism yeah, involved sure. in that. Yeah. I, I, I personally believe that that is one of the major factors, to be honest, because I think it's not, it's not accidental that the flow of children is quite one-sided and that it's mainly children from the global south, uh, from families of color or uh, indigenous families and that they go to the political West into mainly white families and white Christian families, I should add as well. I think that you can, you can add a lot of other industries together, like the orphan tourism and the voluntourism and this whole idea of white people going into other countries to fix things yep. and thinking that that they know better how to deal with things than the people who live in the countries themselves. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be like adults. Um, I remember seeing like a, an article in a Swedish, uh, a Swedish magazine about some kids, like 15 year old, 15 years old who went to some African country and they built a school. Mm. And it's like, I wouldn't trust a 15 year old with no education <laughs> to build a school. Uh, and there were pictures of like, black adults holding like a glass of water that was brown and then one glass of water that was with clear water and saying like this is how it was before these children came (laughs) yeah yeah you know so it's also this sort of we are so grateful to these white people coming to our village and fixing things um so so so, i mean that perspective we, we already have it in so many other aspects of society uh, so adoption is one of them. So I think that that is also one of the reasons why the, com- the, the, the conversation is so difficult because there is this idea that white saverism is good. If you have good intentions as a white person and you want to help people who are poor, how can that be wrong? And I think also that we have a perspective on people of color from, from poor countries, uh, in the global south that they are less, lesser parents that they don't know how to take care of children. They, it's almost like sometimes people talk about them as they are children as well, who aren't really capable. They don't really understand, especially if the parents can't read and write. So when we hear about, for instance, coercion in the sense that parents have been given false contracts that say that they are told that your child will go to abroad for a few years on an educational program, please sign here. And they sign. And then it turns out that they signed adoption papers a lot of people don't really take pity on the parents because they think that if they can't even read and write, you know, they don't deserve to have kids. How anyway. can they raise their own child? Yeah. 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 Whereas in our countries, like Sweden, for instance, if you are poor, uh, if you are white and poor and single, no one says that 
you're not capable of taking care of your child or the child will suffer because you don't have all these material goods, then all focus is on, yeah, but love is the most important thing. Children don't care about material goods. It's love. But when the same goes for a person in, let's say, India, then it's like, oh, it's way better for the child to be removed from that place and, and brought to Sweden. But even um, with your own situation, people were saying to you, oh, like you could have grown up in Korea without technology or whatever. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy because it's such an advanced country. But yeah. It's just that perception. That yeah. It's yeah, the lesser. perception is always no, – it doesn't really matter where you come from. I mean, where you're born as an LFT, you would have for sure ended up as – living on the street or dead, or if you're um, an Asian woman, you probably would have been a prostitute, you name it. There's all these horrific things that would have happened to us. None of us would have made it, basically. And unlike other structural issues that we bring up, it could be almost anything, you know, like, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because um, we have a very big ongoing debate at the moment in but not just Sweden but in Europe in general uh, because Holland just closed completely for adoptions for international adoptions due to the revelation of there's just being too much corruption so, so there's a big debate and people are saying but why don't we ever focus on the positive things about adoption why do we always have to talk about the negative bits which is to begin with, not true. But I'm thinking like, what if we we apply the same logic to other things? Like, well, why do we have to talk about all the people who are dying of COVID? Why can't we talk about all the people who are surviving COVID? Mm. Because we know that the majority of people don't actually die from the pandemic. Mm. Yeah, why do we have to focus on the bad? Why do we have to focus on all the children who are struggling at school? With anything, you know, of course we have to fight problems. We have yeah. to fix problems. I mean, otherwise, nothing should be changed. We yeah. shouldn't fight for anything, not yeah. just social injustice, but anything, because most people are able-bodied or, you know, straight or... Cisgender. You know, yeah. Middle class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So why should we fight for anything? Because most people are not suffering. And I guess that kind of brings me to when you bring up the reactions of people when you talk to them about these issues, mm. they're often quite defensive. Yeah, very much so. I was very shocked by that when I started learning about um, all the corruption and, and, and problems with adoptions. Because I thought when I first heard about it that, oh, gosh, this is newsworthy. Um, everyone should be writing about this because Sweden is the is the country in the world that's adopted most, most children in terms of... Um, in relation to its own population. So I thought that for sure this is newsworthy and uh, that people would be on my side and be equally upset that there are children who are being trafficked for adoption. That's awful. Or that first parents have been tricked and coerced into signing documents that they can't understand or that they had their children actually taken from their arms um, and so on. I thought it was like a given. And then I realized when I started speaking up about these things that people got really, really angry and they said that I was bitter and hateful. I hated my adopted parents. I hated people who couldn't have children. I hated gay people. I hated everyone. And worst of all it, is that I was told that I was ruining things for adoptees who who had had a good life. 
or that maybe they will start questioning their adoptions now and start looking at their papers. We can't have that. And I know that when it comes to crimes against children, people usually get very upset, like child trafficking when it comes to other things like labor and the sex trade uh, and other things are, of course, extremely upset. But child trafficking for adoption is still seen as something that is maybe not perfectly okay, but it's not entirely bad either, because adoption in itself is a good thing. And that hasn't really changed since I started speaking out against these things, which I've done for a bit over a decade now. I'm still being labeled as as hateful. And even now, there's more and more reporting in mainstream media about corruption and adoption, both ongoing uh, and historical. And not just, actually not just from the global south, but also like from Ireland. There's been a lot, not just since the film Philomena was released, but there's a lot about the baby homes, baby and mother homes there, where they found like mass graves and where there's been a lot of admissions to uh, forced adoptions and illegal adoptions. And the same thing in Spain um, during the Franco era. So, so there is a lot of conversations and, uh, and a lot of things that we know for sure has happened. And yet you think every time it's being revealed, the next big scandal is being revealed that now things are going to change. Now they're finally going to listen. Now they're finally going to say, hang on, you said this. You've said this many times. Maybe you were actually right. But no, it doesn't happen. It's still the same conversation. Like, I, I haven't stolen my children, my child. I, I'm a good parent. I haven't done anything. I know that my, 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 my child's adoption was legal. Why are you saying these things? Why do you hate adoption? Why do you hate children? Why do you, why do you hate your parents who have taken you in and are so loving? So it becomes very personal straight away, both the defense and the attacks. Do you think that for a lot of people who do get defensive, it is sort of that confrontation of their part in the wider system of contributing? Absolutely. Um, I think that on one level, one can compare it to when we talk about men's violence against women, that there's always males who say, I would never hit a woman. And that's sort of end of the conversation. Or even women saying that my boyfriend is really nice. You know, we have it from both because there are a lot of adoptees are also questioning me, of course. So it comes from, from both the, from both angles. So I think that's, if I compare it to that situation, you, you know what I mean. But I think that the problem is that adoption is on one hand an extremely personal topic because it is about your family and it is about someone who has taken care of you. Your, uh, as a child and who hopefully has been a really good good parent to you uh so, so so we're talking about one of the most intimate relations that you have in your life the one that you have with your parents and the one you have with your child and for someone then to come and question how you became a family naturally it, it feels like they're attacking you but i think like it is with everything else like if we, if we go back to the conversation about men's violence, there are some men, for instance, who, who are clever enough <laughs> to say things like, even if I'm not beating women up, I'm still benefiting from the system that plays me on the top and where women are afraid of men, 
you know, uh, you know, to, to simplify the conversation just for, for, for a comparison, you know, I'm still benefiting from the system, even if I'm as a person, I'm not taking active part in keeping women down. And I think that the general problem with anything like this is that people have a hard time understanding what the st- structural level is and to have a conversation on a structural level compared to on an individual level. I think that's that's always the case uh, when it comes to heavy topics like this. So I can talk about that we have a structural problem where where children are being forcibly removed by illegal means from vulnerable families and get the response, yeah, but I haven't taken, I, I didn't pay anyone to take a child. So... Okay. Uh, <laughs> Didn't say you did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then you can't really get any further. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And it's the same thing when you talk about racism. Well, yes. Like I'm not racist. I have yeah. a black friend and you know, it's just, <laughs> I'm oh, an Asian. Man. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. When you were explaining that, I immediately thought of conversations around white privilege. Mm. Uh, when yeah. you try to have those conversations with white people and it's just, it's hits the same brick wall. Like, but I'm not racist. Yeah. So no problem. Okay, move on. <laughs> yeah. Or well, I've had a really hard life. I haven't. Yeah. You know, I, I've been unemployed for most of my life or whatever. Do you think there is a case where, like, it can be done well? I think that there, there are models of adoption, but they are probably not really labeled adoptions as the ones that I've described, but like kinship care or the, the type of care that has existed in cultures in probably as long as humanity, uh, where other people then the, the uh, first parents have taken care of their child, where the child grows up in its family or extended family or whānau without losing all this, all the the things that we are expected to lose today. Like you're not cut out from knowing where you come from, and you might might even be in very close contact with your parents. But there are definitely adoptions in the legal terms that are okay if we look at, for instance. Um, I don't know what it's called in English, but in in Sweden it's called like yeah, close kinship adoption or kinship adoption. That maybe your mum and dad they get divorced and then you your mum meets someone new and then they marry and uh and then they they that new partner decides to adopt you with the consent of the the first parent for instance which means that you are still in your family you are not changing your name you're not you know mm. you, you don't get uprooted it's basically a way to protect you in case the mother you have that you're living with dies and you are left with your step parents so so i mean there are those t- types of adoptions that, but they are completely different so they are not really the ones that i am focusing on but when it comes to stranger adoptions as as we also call them that it is a completely different kettle of fish and definitely when it turns into an issue of migration as well. I'm sure that there are other ways to deal with things. It's just that we, and with we, I mean people in the West, that we are quite narrow-minded of what the family is and how children can thrive and, and, and what circumstances children can grow up in that are as good as growing up in a nuclear family. Why can't children, for instance, have more care than two? What if they could have four? What if um, 
families uh, or people could go together and have a family um, or, and have a child together without the child being given up by one part to be raised by the other part. But those parts don't necessarily need to live under the same roof and be together, all of them. But the child doesn't need to be separated from anyone, but can still be cared for by more than two people. I believe that there are lots of other ways to take care of children without forcing them to give up everything that they know and all that's uh, all the other aspects that can be really, really hard for a child to come to terms with. Because today, when we talk about adoption and the struggles of adoptees, a lot of it has to do with family search and access to birth records and access to our real information knowing your uh, if you have cancer in your family things that other people take for granted and certainly the uh, the uh, popularization of dna tests have have changed a lot for adoptees which is really good because now we can for instance know better where we come from like geographically and that many of my friends have have learned that they are indigenous so so i mean the secrecy and the uh, forged paperwork and all those things that are also an aspect of adoption i don't even understand why why they are a part of this because there are ways to legally protect a child who has who isn't growing up with its first parents without having to forge any documents so so i mean there are so many aspects that are just puzzling and extremely upsetting and also has a major impact on how adoptees see themselves or how they feel. So you can have a perfectly good adoption experience and grown up, grown up in a lovely family. And yet every day you are wondering where you come from and you are suffering because your adoption documents are closed uh, and you don't know anything about your background history. And that is what is on your mind. When we can't provide basic ethics, then what is this about, you know? Yeah. There are a lot of very difficult issues with adoption. Yeah. Do you, (laughs) do you you have these conversations with your children? I know they're quite young. Yeah, they're eight and 10 and, but we do, um, mainly my son because he's very inquisitive and he, he wants to know and understand everything. My daughter is a bit more, la, la, la. She's, she's quite happy about things in, in life mm. in general. Uh, whereas he has many, many, many questions about both adoptions and about why we look the way we look and yeah, everything. So, uh, and, and it started at a very early age. And since, uh, my partner, Richie and I are very, vocal in general about social issues at home we can't really shut up about anything you know we're talking about (laughs) everything from capitalism to um, transgender issues and uh, yeah also adoption of course this is something that's just ongoing in our house all the time anyway so adoption is just one of those things but I've decided straight away that I I will not shield my my children from what's happened to me and what I'm going through. But at the same time, you can't tell them everything because then they are going to fear that they are going to get kidnapped on the street. So I don't want them to live with that. Yeah. But but I do have a conversation about how my mother wanted to keep me and she wasn't allowed to. And that's really sad. And I'm really sad about that. And they're trying to understand why I'm why I'm not allowed to to see my my Korean parents and I'm trying to explain that and why I have siblings I can't meet and 
but I think also that something I've come to terms with too is that it. I think I hope it's okay also to sometimes tell your children that I don't really know. I don't know why this is. I I can't. I don't have a straight answer to why certain things happen, and that they have to learn to live with that too. Would you say that you're still on your journey of discovering your full story? Yeah, yeah, and. It's not just about adoption, because one thing we haven't really talked about is this thing about being brought up as a transracial adoptee or just growing up in a family and a community that is white when you are of of color and a different race. So it feels like the uh, that the things I'm still searching for is not just answers about my adoption and where I come from and still hoping desperately to find more family members. Um, I'm still coming to terms with the fact that I'm Asian and that it's okay. Because mm. one thing that has been really hard is first not being allowed to be Asian, to be taught that I'm almost white or that we don't see you as Asian, which is, has been like sort of weirdly well intended. Like if you're almost white, it means that you're almost okay. Uh, but so, so not only has my background been a race, but also my race and my looks. So being a race like that, but then also in terms of when I grew up, there wasn't any, like when I tried to learn about makeup and stuff when I was a teenager, there wasn't any tips for anyone with my eyes. So, so you apply the eyeshadow to your eyelids, blah, blah, blah. And, and like, I don't have any eyelids. How does that work? <laughs> and, you know, the, the thing about skin tone and skin color was always far brighter than I was. And, and clothes didn't fit me because I, I'm, I'm shorter than the regular Swede. So when I came to the Korea for the first time or for the second time, I should say, since I left and realized that I was just so incredibly normal that like I wasn't short all of a sudden. I was just. <laughs> I, w- I I just was. Yeah. And I didn't have to like ask the hairdresser if they know how to cut Korean hair because mm. I had just hair. Mm. It was so wonderful. And then a major thing was that I didn't get tummy ache from the food because I have suffered from tummy ache my whole life. But that one month I spent in Korea, I didn't have tummy ache a single time. And realizing that advertising and everything, uh, clothes and stuff, they fit me and that makeup was made for people with my eyes and yeah, everything. It was just, okay, so this is what it's like to be norm. This is what it's like to not be the anomaly and to fit in. And then, of course, after a while, you start realizing other issues. But that was sort of the next level that in Korea is supposed to be incredibly thin and you're supposed to be almost white uh, in your skin. And I, I'm far too dark for, to be considered beautiful in Korea as, as well. So <laughs> and that uh, plastic surgery is such a major thing there and blah, 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 lots of other issues. But my initial feeling was just like, oh, I'm Korean and I... I fit like, in in yeah, Korea. You belong somewhere. Yeah. And I'm still struggling a lot with feeling this sort of deep sadness that I couldn't be myself for such a long time in terms of what I look like. And I'm working so hard now that my kids won't feel that. And I'm very jealous of my daughter who, she looks a lot like I did when I was her age. 
and that she is just so happy with the way she looks and that she has a mother who knows how her hair works and who can talk to her about that. You know, we need this, these kinds of hair ties because otherwise it's just going to fall out. And, yeah. and uh, uh, she's just happy about, about being her and, and about me being me and that we look so much like each other. So I'm trying to reclaim all that now as an adult and I'm constantly feeling happy and sad at the same time. Mm. Like, because living here in Auckland is, is a, for me still, it's a, it's the best of two worlds, even though I know it has its problems and that a lot of Asians are targeted here as well for hate crimes and stuff. But for me, where I am in my life, I still feel that this is such a wonderful place to be because I get access to Korean culture and to, there's a lot of Asians living here. So, so I get to see other people who look like me all the time and I'm treated as a human being. And we've been here for a bit over four years and we left because of racism in Sweden. That was one of the major reasons why we left. We didn't want the kids to grow up with the same sort of racial isolation and racism as me. So we were looking for somewhere to live where we could speak English uh, and where there would be a lot of Asians. By chance, it, it became Auckland and we are still very happy here. But I feel like when we met, we met at the uh, um, the march, the anti the Stop Asian Hate March. Yeah. And I don't know if, if the other people who were there at the pre thing with Migrants in Collective felt what I did, but every time I do something like that, for me, it's the first time that I'm in a room with more than like two Asians, um, who are not adopted where you just feel safe and you feel that it's, you can talk about these issues without being questioned. And I always feel like I just want to cry. So I, I feel that. I'm probably going to deal with these things for the rest of my life. But I also feel a lot happier that I, that we moved here and that I get to experience these things. Because when I post these things, my friends who are still in Sweden are saying, I wish something like this could happen in Sweden. So I know mm. that most of my friends still haven't experienced, mm. experienced it. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about, because you also mentioned a little bit about trying to find belonging mm. as an Asian adoptee. Yeah. That's something also that's been voiced in the ad adoptee community a lot lately. Now, since the pandemic and, and the race uh, or rise of, of hate crimes against Asians in a lot of Western countries, but a lot of adoptees are saying that they still feel alienated from these conversations because on the one hand we are, our closest family members are, are very often white and most of us marry white partners and we haven't been taught to have these conversations. So we are finding language, the language to express these things with now as, as adults. And I think also that there's a lot of prejudice against adoptees from other groups of immigrants and people of color. Um, we are often seen as these spoiled brats who got to grow up in wealth, uh, which is true in some cases, but very often not as well, I should say. And we are not seen as real Asians and we don't feel as real Asians. So it's not just coming from inside, but also from the outside that, oh, you, you're the one with the white parents. You must be so privileged. Mm. So I think that the challenges now is that we are subjected to the exact same racism as any other Asian person, but we, we don't really know how to, to tackle it how to have conversations about it, how to feel about it, and how to 
feel and be included in the larger Asian community because of our adoptive, adoptive experience. When I've been in, in, in these conversations or in, in, in spaces with a lot of other Asians and they are talking about their experiences as growing up as the 1.5 generation or as, um, uh, have the parents immigrating and, uh, and a lot of conversations about the smelly lunches and they were bullied as for, for them and, or that they can't speak their language with their grandparents and stuff. For me, it's like, but you at least have your family. You at least look like your family members. You at least have someone, you know, that I can feel this, like, both jealousy and also that I can't really identify with these issues because I have not experienced any of those. Uh, and it's probably unfair to some some extent, uh, but I think that a lot of adoptees feel feel like that. And this, this can also be very triggering, of course, especially for those of us who are searching or who, who knows that we will never f- find anyone, that you feel that you are seen as this privileged person, but in fact you have lost so much and you, that you can never reclaim. And then when it comes to, to discussions of racism, people still think that you are more privileged as an Asian because you have some sort of weird closeness to whiteness through your adoption that that may be true for a part of our lives. And also, of course, it depends on where we grew up. But like, if I compare to, to my own upbringing, that I grew up in this tiny village, that everybody knew that I was adopted. So I wasn't seen as the Asian in that sense. And people knew that I didn't have, uh, that I didn't eat smelly kimchi uh, because I ate pancakes and meatballs. I didn't speak a foreign language. So people knew that I, I spoke Swedish. So, so it wasn't anything weird about it. But as soon as you leave home and you're on your own, you become a full Asian and you are seen as one and you have no idea how to, how to deal with that. And I remember that for me, it took, first of all, it took my partner who comes from, from England to move to Sweden and just pointing out the fact that, do you know how many people are staring angrily at you when you are just out and about? Cause he was very uncomfortable with that. And I'm like, no, I haven't thought about it. And then when he started pointing it out, I started noticing it too. And he noticed all these microaggressions. And at that time, we didn't use the word microaggressions. That was like a new term. So when it came, I was very grateful for that because I could finally address the things. But I had up until that point described myself as a person who are very unlucky all the time, mm. that I have bad luck. And my bad luck was that, oh, I always seem to catch service people on their bad day. And I was unlucky that this door closed just before or that the bus just drove off when or that, you know, everything was because of bad luck. And then I started learning that, no, what's happening to you is racism. You are being targeted because you're a nation. And uh, I started looking into and uh, read more about this and, and connecting with other Asians and uh, seeing a pattern, basically. So I think that these conversations are very, very difficult to have and to feel included in when you are adopted because you have never learned to even acknowledge that they happen to you. For me, you know, you feel... Like you don't belong into whiteness. You don't feel like you belong in the Asian community. And you don't really, sometimes you don't feel like you belong in the, in the world at all because, because you were adopted. Um, yeah, it can be a very lonely place. 
sometimes.、Mm. I don't always feel like that. So you've talked about the experience that your daughter has had or is having. What about your son? Oh, it's very up and down. He remembers a lot of the racism that happened to us in Europe, and and has been very concerned about it. And at first, he he dealt with it by wanting to be white. So he has embraced being Swedish, which equals with being white, unfortunately, and being British also equals with being white. So he's talked about himself as being British and Swedish and not Korean. That is his way of negotiating his whiteness, and he's also expressed when when we were targeted last、uh, a couple of times ago when we were in Europe and we we suffered a lot of racist abuse, and I was just crying because we were attacked on a bus in London and I was just crying on the street because、oh. it was awful, and he was big enough then to really understand what had happened and he just. After that, he just said that he wants to be white and he doesn't want to look like someone who will be attacked. And we are trying to to talk about. I mean, we 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 are constantly having conversations about this, but you can't just force someone to identify with something. You know, it has to come from within. But then we moved here, and the first school he was in was in Freeman's Bay, where more than fifty percent are of Asian. And East Asian descent, so that was really nice. So he made a lot of friends who looked like him. And then now, for instance, he's he's playing football, and one of his biggest role models is Son, the South Korean player who's in Tottenham Hotspurs.、Uh, he's a big role model for him, and I don't think he he chose him as his idol just because he's a good football player.、Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a connection to Korea there. And、um, this is one of the things I posted on Instagram very recently. Is that I, I was driving him to a friend, and he just said like, "Mama, I I like being Korean,"、um, and that's the first time he has said that, or even acknowledged that he's Korean in that sense. Like,、oh, I like being Korean because a lot of Koreans do really cool things, <laughs>、uh, and I was so happy to hear that because it felt like. It matters. Like I always go on about representation matters. That's one of my things that I work a lot with in my own comics and and drawings and stuff. That representation is important,、uh, and not just positive representation. Just existing is is important. He has now seen a lot of representation of people who look like us that has been very positive. So he can now state the fact that Koreans are cool. And he doesn't feel that ashamed anymore to look like that. So I just feel that I just need to keep keep up this work with making sure that he has access to role models who look like us, and that he gets to keep meeting people who look like us who are, you know, nice. I think now is also like there's a lot more Asian representation on things like Netflix and with. K-pop being so popular now,、mm. kids growing up now are quite fortunate to have that representation in a Western context. Yeah, and that's something that myself, like my friends and I, didn't have growing up, and、mm. our struggle was exactly like not having people around us who looked like us, yeah, who shared the same culture and all that kind of stuff, and wanting to be white because we didn't want. To be different, right? Yeah, because one thing that people 
used to say to me, because now it is different, I think, especially with um, yeah platforms like Netflix and, and YouTube and so on. But people used to say like, but what do you mean that there aren't any Asian people in films? There are lots, have you, you know, the Asian film industry? Like, yeah, I do, but I don't identify with any of those people. I want, I want Asians in a Western context that I can relate to. Because I mean, I love yeah, we talked about K-drama last time. Yeah. I love K-drama, <laughs> but I don't understand anything. I, I I mean, yeah, there's so many things. Like, they probably not even like big plot lines. It's just assumed, you know, like cultural differences that yeah. I don't get, that you probably don't even think of if you are Korean. So I always feel like I'm watching something that is a bit, not science fiction, but along those lines, mm. like... Uh, I have to understand the like the narrative structures and everything, you know, go to the basics to understand what's going on. And I don't have to do that when I watch Crazy Rich Asians or uh, Always Be My Maybe or any of those things. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand exactly what's going on. Yeah. And I can relate to a lot of references uh, and stuff. Um, so it isn't just about someone looking like me. It's also, it needs to be something that I can relate to. And then you can take it further and further and further because, you know, there's always layers to that because then you have like, why do uh, the representation always has to be, even if it's positive, why does it always have to be like thin, beautiful women? Yeah. That's the next step. Why does it always have to be straight women? I kind of think that was like Crazy Rich Asians as well, for example. Like it's so great to have that movie, but then it's like... Uh, there's still more, more work that can be done. For example, like the yeah. lead actor, like he, there are so many Asian, fully Asian actors and they chose someone who was half white. Yeah. And then there's also that sort of, again, like single narrative of Asians being rich as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff to work on, but it's still great. Yeah. And to also I, to be honest, I also thought that the plot line was utterly boring. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> And the same thing would always be my maybe. I, I got. I can't Wait, express how much. Wait, which one was that much. one again? It's that. It's the with Randall Park and um, Constance Wu. No, 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 no. Constance Wu is uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, Baby Cobra. Oh gosh, I love her. I forgot her name just now. Oh, that's so embarrassing. Ah, oh, yes. It's a stand-up comedian. Alison, Alison, Ellie Wong. Ali Wong. Yes, that's oh right. My yes, God. yes. Oh, I'm that's so embarrassed. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love her so much. Yeah, um, she's great. But it also shows, you know, how how one thirsts for these things that you just accept these things because she's like, ah, oh, give me anything. It's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So currently, you are working on a new book. Yeah. <laughs> can what what can you tell us it's about that? It's quite a challenge. Like my first graphic novel, this is also going to be about adoption, but not about me this time. But I'm following two Chilean adoptees who adopted to Sweden um, from two different families in Chile to the same adoptive family in Sweden. And they learned quite recently that they were both stolen. There's, there's a big crime investigation uh, going on in Chile at the moment looking into or thinking that it could be up to 20,000 children who were stolen between maybe the 50s or 60s up until the 90s, mainly during the Pinochet era. It's very emotional to work with, very heartbreaking. And I'm interviewing a lot of first mothers in Chile uh, to get their stories firsthand. And it's just, it's just horrendous, the things that have happened to them. And most of them are of Mapuche origin. So they are origin. So they are indigenous and they have been treated so horribly and still are. 
by the uh, Chilean government. Um, not necessarily single women like Korea, but just very vulnerable families who were targeted and had their children either forcibly removed or when they had given birth, they were told that their children have died and they never got a death certificate or anything. And then it turned out that children had been just abducted and taken to orphanages and then sent for adoption to Sweden. We say in Sweden that time heals all wounds. But when it comes to these these mother's stories, it's just the opposite. That every year, it just gets harder and harder for them to live with this, this trauma of having lost their children. And now when many of them have reunited and, and learned that, oh, my, my, my son wasn't dead after all. And I've been wearing black on his birthday every year for 40 years and he's alive. They, they, they're happy that they are reunited, but the grief is still there because they have lost a half a life with their children. The adoption agency who facilitated um, most of these adoptions, uh, the Swedish agency, are saying that the mothers are just lying. They're just making this up because they feel guilty for having abandoned their kids. And now when the, ki- the children come knocking, they just um, they lie to make themselves uh, look better. Um, and it, it's just it's just so awful that they, they that they can say that this they say that in television, uh, and they are not questioned. Uh, it's so brutal um, and disrespectful. So I'm trying to do my part uh, as a comic book artist to to make the stories a little bit more full. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for coming and sharing like your own experiences, but also everything that you've learnt along the way and also everything that you're working on to educate um if you do want to support lisa you can oh you can follow me on instagram for instance um you can find me on john.ullim uh or you can support my patreon uh it's ullim i I can put some links in the yeah. episode description. Yeah. Um, and you can buy my book, which is um, um, Palimpsest, which is called Palimpsest. And it's actually uh, translated to English. It, it came out in Swedish originally, but it was translated to English. Yeah, it's very good. Well back. Yeah, uh, highly recommend. I read it in one <laughs> night. You. I was just so caught up in the story. So, yeah, it's awesome. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me. It's really (laughs) nice talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to support and follow Lisa and her work in the show notes. This is the final episode of 2021. However, I will be re-releasing some of the top episodes from this year over the holiday season. Have a wonderful and safe festive season and catch you in the new year.